So I'm not going to be that pastor that is afraid to admit when he is wrong and, uh, you know, not clean up the mistakes of things that I might say, you know, from time to time in the pulpit if I make a mistake. And I had an error pointed out to me the other week that as I was talking about the month of February, and I said that February is the worst month of the year and there's nothing good in February, um, I was corrected and I have to say I was wrong. Uh, someone very close to me has reminded me there is a very, very special day in February and that I should not have overlooked it, and that day is Fosnot's Day. And so I'm sorry that I have failed to uh, you know, give it its credence and its full due, uh, but I'll definitely make sure that we celebrate, and I just want to remind you that's coming up. Um, it, it is funny, though, like, well, well, I have people come up to me a lot and they'll say, like, oh, you always talk about food, and I've just, like, stopped, you know, hiding it. Like, yeah, like, it's, it's I, every week I could go to a food illustration to some, some sort, so uh, why not, again, start with one today, and, uh, and so I love to cook, um, and when I cook, I don't, like, just like to make food. I like to, like, make it, make it like an ordeal, like we're, we're having a good meal, we're trying to cook things the right way, and so in our house, we have all sorts of, like, different cooking things, and my favorite by far is, is a cast iron pan. I love a cast iron pan. It's just been handed down, and it's old, and um, it's been taken care of, and, and really, it's, it's the best, in my opinion, the best pan to cook with because it holds heat so well, um, and if you get the seasoning right, that's really the trick. You got to get the seasoning right because if you get the seasoning right, and then what I mean by that is a, is a layer of oil that's on the pan, and that keeps things from sticking to it. All right, and so, so I got a cast iron pan. This isn't my favorite one, but this is a pretty, pretty good one. Um, and it's kind of like midway through a good seasoning process, to be honest with you. Um, and you can see where it's more reflective. It's less likely to be sticky. And, you know, like if I would cook eggs on it, they're not going to stick as much. Now, on, on the other side, this one, you can see this is what an unseasoned griddle would look like. This is cast iron that has not been taken care of, um, that you can see a little bit of rust, a little bit of corrosion in there. You can guess if I were to cook something on this side compared to this side, one of them is going to stick and one of them is going to be much better to cook with. And so the seasoning process is really key to the whole idea of cooking with cast iron. Um, otherwise, this incredible pan that's capable of so, so, so many things in the kitchen is quite useless on the other side. So People I know have cast iron pans and they're just they're rusty and they never use them. They're just in a closet or an attic because they haven't seasoned them appropriately. The seasoning process is really, you got to do it the right way. You got to use the right oil. You can't have a cold pan because if you put oil on a cold pan, it, it won't absorb the oil, the, the pan, the metal's not receptive to, to the seasoning process. And so um, I've studied a good deal to see, and, and you can... You can have the pan, and you can try and season, but if you don't do it right, it's not going to get the layers that it needs on there, the layers of seasoning that really allow it to, to cook well. And so as we're in this Paul's series, I, I wanted to, to talk about this because to me, every day of rest that we take, and, I, and we're challenging you to do that, we're challenging for a two-month rhythm of rest to see what God does in your life in that time, but it's got to be done right. The process is, is crucial to the outcome and how good it is. And it's almost to me very, very much like the seasoning idea of a cast iron pan where I can't put oil on a cold pan. It's got to be the right oil. I can't get it in a pan too hot. I've got, there can't be too much oil. We've got to wipe it out. And so, and so to me, as we talk this morning, I want us to think in terms of the, the perspective of getting the seasoning of rest right in our life that our lives are the most receptive to what God has for us in this pause. 
that we can absorb and experience as much of it and it's as beneficial as possible because just like a good cast iron pan, if I'm going to cook a bunch of stuff on it, it needs to be able to do it well and not have a bunch of food sticking to it. And I think sometimes in life we just let stuff stick to us and then we go to rest and it doesn't really go away. And So I want to pray as we get started that, that God would prepare our hearts to receive this just like we'd receive rest. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the text that we're going to look at in Hebrews 4 today. I pray it's a blessing to us. Um, I, I pray that we're going to take some time to just really enjoy what your word has for us. And at the same time, we're challenged by it. Lord, I pray that the outcome of this would be, would be just that we would absorb rest as it's meant to be absorbed. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to look at a passage in Hebrews chapter 4. Now, a lot of the Bible, you can just pick up, you can start reading, and you'll get something out of it, and it'll be good for you. Hebrews is a, is, is a book that really, if you don't understand some of the context and what he's saying and who he's saying it to, it becomes very difficult for us to really wrap our heads around, around it. If, if we read Hebrews, if you just sat down and you had no idea what Hebrews was about, some of it would be very good, but a lot of it you'd be kind of scratching your head saying, I don't really understand what's going on here. It's like a conversation, and I'm over here not really in it, and, and I don't understand what's going on. So Hebrews, and, and so I want to remind you, Hebrews and all the books of the Bible, they're written to an audience years and years and years ago, but they're written down for us. And so it's like we're in a conversation, and I want us to understand the context of the conversation. In the book of Hebrews, the context of the conversation is, is you've got a pastor sending a message to a group of followers of Jesus. All right, so very much like what you're experiencing right now, where I've got a, a message, it's written down, and I'm sending it to you, I'm trying to portray to you what God is communicating. Hebrews is a pastor sending a sermon or a message to a group of followers of Jesus who are living in Rome. They're living there, and they're particularly this part of uh, Rome is a bunch of Christians who've come to know Christ out of a Hebrew, name of the book, Hebrew or Jewish background. And so they have that lineage to them where they understand the Old Testament far better than what you or I do. Um, they live this out. And, and so they're, they're in Rome. They're being persecuted because not just from the Romans, but they're being persecuted from their own family members, from their own nationality, the, the Israelites. Because for a Jewish person to begin to follow Jesus, you would become an outcast. I mean, you would not even be welcome in your home. And some of these Christians were being kicked out of their home. They were losing their jobs and their incomes, and they were losing their family and their friends. And so the writer of Hebrews is sending this message to really answer a question that they were wrestling with, where they're wondering, is it worth it? I'm going through everything. I've lost everything I've known. This isn't like a social Christianity where Jesus is just a nice part of our week. This is to follow him meant that they would lose things. And they're looking around saying, we've lost it, and, and is it worth it? And so the writer of Hebrews sends this sermon to say, yes. Yes, it was. And I want you to know, I want you to know that you should finish the race, that you should keep going. In Hebrews 11, the other people have done this before, and they've had difficulty, and they kept going, and every one of them said it was worth it. And so uh, I, I like the way that Dr. Greg Guthrie, um, a New Testament professor, talks about this, the book of Hebrews. Uh, he kind of gives an overview of the book 
uh, about how they can endure through what they're facing. And he says this, he says, if we're going to persevere through difficulty, our ability to get through it is in direct proportion to our view of Jesus. If we're going to endure difficulty, our ability to get through it is in direct proportion to our view of Jesus. He says, look, what you cannot do is go through this season and imagine that your struggles are somehow bigger than Jesus. That you've got little Jesus and then you've got big giants that are your difficulties in life. And little Jesus can't really do anything about big giants in your life. And, and so then, then you could give up. What he's saying is, is quite the opposite. He's saying, no, no, no. If you're going to endure this, you need to understand exactly how enormous and powerful and loving Jesus is. And the more that you see that, the better you will be able to endure and overcome the things that you face in life. So Hebrews 1, for instance, he starts out, and if you only read one thing this week, I pray, pray that it would be Hebrews 1. Um, Hebrews 1, he starts out and he goes, Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of God, and he's the one who will inherit everything. He will inherit all of this world, all of history will be his. And he's the one who created the universe. He's the radiance of God's glory. And so you think of the sun and the way the sun shines on the world and how the sun, the rays of the sun give light and they warm you up and they let things grow and, and they give us just day and, and, and all the good that the sun produces. It's kind of the radiance of the sun. Jesus is the radiance of God the Father. He's visible to us and he sustains everything by his power. And so the writer of Hebrews says, don't forget who Jesus is. That, yeah, you're giving up for him, but in the end, you're gaining because of who you follow. And so, so really, um, we as a church, we have a value where we, we say we're going to have a rock-solid dependence on God. But what we mean by that is we don't want little Jesus. We don't want, he's just there to help me a little bit. We want you to have this overwhelmingly huge perspective of who Jesus Christ is and on a regular basis for you to go, I depend on you. You sustain me. That what I have in life, I have because of you. And so as they wonder if it's worth it, the writer of Hebrews is going to say, yes, it's worth it. Jesus is going to be enough for you, but you need to understand something, that Christianity is never meant to be easy. Easy is not the word for it. If you thought that you were going to be able to follow Jesus and never have any difficulty in life, that no one ever would ever think of you differently, nobody would ever judge you, or nobody would ever give you a hard time because of your faith, you've misunderstood what the Scriptures teach. It's never easy, but it is, it is better. It is much better. And so that's what Hebrews is doing. It's saying, don't be confused. This wasn't about, this wasn't about a life of ease, but don't be dismayed that you think that somehow this is less. Because Jesus is more and this is better. And so he's going to speak about this in terms of rest in Hebrews chapter 4. That part of the issue here, church, is that you've forgotten to rest in God. And he wants to make sure that they enjoy rest for all that it can be. And he's going to speak about it in terms that I've already been speaking about it, in terms of, of, of giants. In terms of giants. Because what he'll do in Hebrews 4 is he's going to, speak to them based on their understanding of the Old Testament, and he's going to refer back to a time when Israel was about to enter the promised land, but they saw giants, and they doubted God, and they disobeyed, and they disrespected God, 
And so they didn't get to enter rest because the problems of the world were bigger than their trust of God. And so I want us to look at that uh, this morning in Hebrews 4. But before we get there, because they would have had such a profound understanding of the Old Testament, I want us to just kind of take a step back. And and we're going to watch a video from another pastor. Just um, It's going to help visualize how Israel ended up at the point where they're standing on the promised land looking and, and then they chose to, to disobey and disrespect God. So check this out. 2,000 years before Christ, this guy named Abraham was around. And Abraham was called by God out of the Ur of the Chaldees. And he was blessed by God. He said, you're going to have many, many, many children. I'm going to give you this promised land. And he goes up over the desert. And then he comes down and he settles into Canaan. Then he has Isaac. And then Isaac gives birth to Jacob and to Esau. Jacob has 12 sons. One of them is Joseph. And Joseph is sold by his brothers into captivity. And he goes into slavery in Egypt. It's not by Joseph's will, trust me, but God's. He's there in Egypt, becomes a leader. And there's a great famine And Jacob's family now comes, 70 in all. And that 70 group over 400 years becomes thousands and thousands and thousands. And this is the nation. And then a little baby's born named Moses. And that baby grows up to become a ruler. And then he's kicked out. And then Moses comes to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. He leads them out, takes them to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And then... They travel, the Israelites travel 11-day path to Kadesh Barnea. God says, go take the land. But they disobey God's commands. They rebel. And because of their rebellion, they're afraid to inherit the land. God, what did he do? He disciplines them. And they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. This is where that generation dies. And then after 40 years, a new generation is born. And those new people, they go up to the plains of Moab. Moses preaches a message called the book of Deuteronomy, three sermons. Moses dies and is buried in Beth Peor. Moses does not go into the promised land. His sidekick and assistant Joshua then leads the nation into the promised land. That's just a little help for your memory. So I don't know about you, but I I just love that sort of visual representation to kind of fill us in because we we kind of lose sight of that grand perspective where God for just hundreds of years has been moving them towards this moment and just miracle after miracle and provision after provision. And then they get to the edge of the promised land and God says, go take it. And after they've seen him split the seas, after they've seen him do plague after plague, after he just provided food for them out of thin air, They look at the giants and go, they're bigger than us. And by default, what they communicated was, they're bigger than you. They're more than you can handle. And so the message that the writer in Hebrews is going to pick up out of this is is that rebellious hearts always prevent real rest. Rebellious hearts always prevent real rest. That we need to understand something about our makeup. That when we're 
angry at God or we're blaming God or we're distanced from God or we're just walking the wrong way away from God. Our own rebellion will create an unrest within us. Rebellious hearts always prevent real rest. And so then with that mentality, with that understanding, Hebrews chapter 4, it says God's promise of entering his rest still stands. So we ought to tremble with fear that some of you might fail to experience it, that you, because of your rebellious heart, may miss out on it. For this good news that God has prepared this rest has been announced to us just as it was to them, to the Israelites in the promised land. But it did them no good because they didn't share the faith of those who listened to God. For only we who believe can enter his rest. As for others, God said, in my anger, I took an oath, they will never enter my place of rest. Even though this rest has already been ready since he made the world, we know it is ready because of the place in the scriptures where it mentions the seventh day. On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. So what in the world is going on here? Head-scratching moment. How do we understand it? What does it mean for them? What does it mean for us? Let's start with the reality that any time in our society, when we look at the thought of the possibility that God might be angry, it's a bit of a shock to us. We live in a world that has painted God as only loving all the time and that there's nothing anger or there's no anger or judgment in him. Um, and so it kind of it, it stands like, really? Are we really going to believe that there's a God who can get angry? And, and I, I would say, yes, um, I, I think we would absolutely believe that. And, and honestly, I think every one of us would believe that if we're looking at it from the right angle. Um, and so let, let me tell you a story. A couple years ago, about 10 years ago, um, I was pumping gas at, at a gas station. And I remember I was sitting there and it's just kind of looking around like, what do you do when you pump gas? You know, you look around. And I look around and I see a father angry towards his children. And in his anger, he's yelling and screaming at them. And, and I see him raise his hand uh, about to make inappropriate, over, over, more than was, far more than was needed contact with his child. And at his anger and seeing his reaction, there developed in me an anger. An anger of, I will do whatever I can to interrupt that. Whatever it costs me, I'm going to stop an injustice and a wrong from happening. And so I remember walking over aggressively to do something about it. And I remember the look in the dad's eyes when he realized that he had made a mistake and he just quickly turned on the car and drove off. And I don't know ever what happened in that moment, but I know there were two types of anger in that moment that were incredibly different. Incredibly different. One was an anger that was selfish and sinful and evil and wicked and wrong as he was about to hurt his children in a way that was entirely wrong. And another was an anger that said, I see wrong. And I cannot overlook the wrong that I see. I cannot just be indifferent towards this. I mean, can you imagine in that moment if I would look at that and not be angry? I mean, what would be wrong with me to not be angry in that moment. And so God looks at his nation who he's called and he's blessed with miracle after miracle, who they were to be the witnesses of faith. Their faith was to be representative to everybody and, and they come upon the giants and they say, we don't trust you, God. And, and so God is angry at their disobedience and disbelief. A couple things that I want us to understand about this text 
that we get wrong. The first one is, is they, you, you know, people debate, does this mean, does this mean that somebody can make God angry so that they won't go to heaven if they're a believer in Jesus Christ? They've been forgiven of this. Is, is Hebrews chapter three and chapter four specifically, are they written to tell us that God might be angry and you, you might not go to heaven because of it if you've already been forgiven of your sins? And my answer to that is, it is, well, first of all, why, what, what do you think? Let's read Hebrews 3 and verse 1 when he starts this argument. Do you think he's talking about people that are going to heaven or not going to heaven? What do you think? Hebrews 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters. Holy is this word that he's already spoken of in chapter 2 and verse 11 where Jesus made them holy and they're set apart. They're forgiven of their sins. Jesus did that. They didn't do that. Jesus did that. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus who we acknowledge as our apostle and high, high priest. It sounds an awful lot to me like he's speaking about people who are going to heaven. I don't think he's saying that God might be angry and keep you from heaven. I, I think it's really quite, quite different. I, I, I look at it in terms of this. I have kids who will disobey me. One day, they might very well become rebellious teens. Some of you have already had rebellious teens. And they might do thing after thing to annoy me and frustrate me and go against everything that I desired for them. But one thing that is always going to be true is they will always be my children. They will not for a second, in the highest amount of disobedience, they will not for a second cease to be my kids. However, in their rebellion... I most likely will get angry at times. Probably, I would say, rightly so. Because in their disobedience, I may have to step in as a parent and do what any loving parent would do and discipline them. And I might keep certain things from them. I know a story I love, a, a gentleman I did a funeral for, for, I never met him, but I remember sitting there speaking to his daughter as she relayed stories about what her dad was like, and she said, I was, I was the rebellious child, and she said, I'll, I'll never forget, uh, they were a car family, and so his daughter knew a lot about cars, he taught her that, he said, she said, my, my dad was so angry at me one day, he, he went out and he, he, took some, he took a piece out of the engine of my car so that I couldn't drive it anywhere. And she's like, he didn't think he taught me enough, but he, I knew right where it was. And I went and got another one, put it in there, and I drove off. I was thinking, that's what a loving father would do though, right? He'd say, your actions are so disrespectful and so far away from what I, I've raised you to live in that I'm going to discipline you and take a privilege from you to try to get you back to a place of character. Because what's more important, the privilege or the character? The character is far more important. And so as a father, there will be many times in the future where I will discipline my kids to walk them into a life of character, even if it costs them privilege. And I absolutely believe that's what's happening in Hebrews 4. God's going, you're always going to be my children, but if you enter a phase, a phase of rebellion and disobedience, just like what happened before, don't think that you're different from them. I'm just going to discipline you. And that discipline might be a withholding of privilege so I can shape your character. 
John chapter 5 and verse 24, Jesus says, if you believe in me, you crossed over from life to death. You live somewhere new. You're not losing that. What we see here is a rebellious child, and we can see that because the problem with Israel isn't that Israel didn't get to go to heaven, it's that they didn't get to go to the promised land. After all, Moses didn't get to go to the promised land, right? He had to go somewhere else. But Moses is still in heaven. We see that. Jesus talks about that. So the problem isn't that they didn't go to heaven. The problem is that they didn't get to rest because they were disobedient. Big picture idea here. This is the difference between grace and religion. Grace and religion. Grace is this, is that God accepts me and then I obey. I'm holy. In his eyes, it's like, it's like I, I can't sin because Jesus has already forgiven me of anything that I will do. I've been forgiven. And, and so he accepts me and then I obey. There's this life that I enter where now I've been welcomed into the family. So as a loving response, I should say I'm gonna live with gratitude. Now, as a child, the second that I become a child, I'm not gonna lose that status, but I might disobey. And if I obey, I'm blessed. If I disobey, disobey then I'm disciplined. Hebrews goes on to, to talk about this exact thing later in the book. If I were to adopt a child right now, they would be in my family forever. There would be moments when I would discipline them. There would be moments where I'd bless them. What, what religion is, on the other hand, is saying, if you obey, then God will accept you. Religion gets it backwards. And in that sense, Christianity is never religion. It's never let me obey so that God accepts me so that I can get to go to heaven. It's totally because God accepts me through faith. I get to go to heaven. So why wouldn't I want to walk a life of obedience? And I understand that if I disobey because God cares more about my character than my privileges, he's going to discipline me to guide me. Second thing we need to understand about this passage is that when he talks about them entering the rest, he's not talking about a place, but he's talking about a reality and experience. That was always the case. When God spoke of the promised land, it was representative of a rest they could enjoy with God anytime. And we know that because Psalm 95, which it quotes here, if you want to be real particular, he quotes in Hebrews 4. And Psalm 95 is all about this ability to enjoy a rest, enjoy a rest, enjoy a rest, because they're not enjoying a rest. And he writes Psalm 95 while they are in the promised land. He says, look, you're in the place of rest, but you're not resting. So the, the challenge here is really don't be like, don't be like the, the rebellious child that in the rebellion may exclude themselves from enjoying the finer privileges of being in the family. Don't be like the rebellious child that in your rebellion you could exclude yourself from enjoying the finer privileges of being in the family. I've known families who have a child who is it's just making poor choices. And the father is torn because he has financially just a, a wealth at his disposal. But he's not going to give it if it's going to be wasted. And, and so here, here we look here and we see this where the writer in Hebrews is going, you're fearing the circumstances. The bigger thing you should fear is that you may exclude yourself from what your soul deeply longs for the most incredible rest, the most incredibly restorative, refreshing, rejuvenating rest. He goes on in verse 9, he says, so there is a special rest still waiting for the people of God. 
And this is what we want for you, by the way, a special rest. Not just a break, but a special rest. For all who have entered into God's rest have rested from their labors just as God did after creating the world. So let us do our best to enter that rest. But if we disobey God, as the people of Israel did, we will fall. Simon Kistemaker sums that up. He says, in other words, the rest that God is talking about is a spiritual rest and has much greater significance than any promised land. It's a rest from sin and evil. That sin and evil itself, that our sin would cause us to enter a cycle where we're now disciplined. And even the very nature of sin, we're going to look at that in a series in, in March, even the very nature of sin is unrest. It is fatigue. It wears at you. It brings guilt. It brings shame. And he's saying the people in, in Israel never were willing to leave their own evil to enjoy a season of rest. Never found obedience to be able to enjoy not just the character, but the blessing of following after God. In a sense in this series, I sort of feel like, like the Costco sample guys. Like you know the Costco, the people that stand at Costco, and, and a year ago they would have given you samples. But now, like I walk around the, the and, and so at the beginning of COVID, they just took away the sample people. And now, like I went back a couple weeks ago, and I was like, the sample people are back. This is great, I get free lunch while I walk around the store. And I go up to the first one, and I was like, I'll try that. And they're like, well, we're not giving it out. I'm like, what? They're like, we're just allowed to talk about it. If you want it, you've got to take it home and buy it, and then you can have it. They're like, no, I, I, just want, I just want the sample. And I feel bad for them, because it's got to be like the hardest job in the world. Like, this food is really good. Trust me. <laughs> it's really, just take my word for it. It's really good. This series to me feels, feels like I'm doing that because I cannot give you rest. You have to purchase it and enjoy it on your own. You've got to make time in your schedule. You've got to buy into it to say that I believe that God is honest about how I crave and need rest. And to set aside my own sin and my own evil is worth it and so I'm going to buy into it. And that's why we've said two months, take it home. Purchase it, take it home, and put it into your life. And see what happens when you say, God, I'm going to set down sin. I'm going to stop being too busy. I'm going to let go of a lack of faith and just enjoy you. Augustine says it this way. He says, my heart, Lord, does not rest until it rests in thee. My heart, Lord, does not rest until it rests in thee. About uh, 10 years ago, I was at a church picnic you know, it was outside. It was summertime, so much different than today. And uh, it was one of those potluck meals. It was at a camp, and so it was beautiful outside. Everybody's bringing a dish, and, and, and it's just, just a real fun time. And we're there, and um, I, I should hesitate to say this because my job at the time was to oversee the young adult ministry at the church. And so... I go to the, the, the picnic and we're going around and like enjoying people. And I see a group of young adults standing in the corner all sort of laughing. And, and I'm like, this, this, that group and laughter, something is afoot. Something's going on here. They're, they're up to something. 
And so I go over and I'm like, what are you guys laughing at? And they're like, well, everybody brought a, a potluck dish, so we did too. I'm like, what in the world did you get? Now, this is the group that would take like donut holes and put mayonnaise in the middle of them. Or they put like sour cream and onion powder on the outside of a donut to make it look like sugar. And it's just like, th this was who they were. And so I was like, I knew the second they said they brought a potluck meal, I was like, this is bad. And I was like, what did you guys do? And they're like, well, we found at the pet store, we found these bacon-flavored dog treats that look like popsicles. I was like, you're kidding me. And they're like, no, they look like chocolate. And I was like, you can't, you cannot do that. Like, I understand you thought this was funny. This is adult time for me to teach you, not like you've crossed the line, you can't do this. And they're, they're laughing, they're like, we already did it. It's already out on the line. And I'm like, oh no. So me and another staff member, we go and we, we pull it off and we notice that one of them's missing. Notice one of the popsicles is gone. And so we like frantically are walking around the picnic. And, and honest to goodness, we see this, this older woman uh, who happened to be the other staff member's mother um, was, had one of these in her hand and I'm like 20 yards away and she's about to take a bite as I'm like trying to get over there and she does it. And she takes this big bite of this bacon flavored dog sickle and I'm like, oh no. And she takes the bite and she goes, pure chocolate, delicious. And I'm like, what? She's like, this is so good. It's pure chocolate. These things are the best chocolate. And I'm just like in a moment of absolute disgust, I couldn't even tell her what she had eaten. Her own son was like, I'm not saying anything. I'm just gonna, for years, she believed that she had the best chocolate she ever had, and it was a dog treat at the church. Like, are you kidding me? How could you possibly think that that was chocolate? But in her mind, she did. She was convinced it was the best chocolate. Look, here's, here's the thing. I think some of us have had rest, and we thought it was good rest, and it's honestly dog food because it's not nearly as good as the rest that God designed you to crave and to experience. And that rest will never be as pure, will never be as good as it is if we don't set aside, at least set aside a day where we say, God, I'm gonna walk away from evil and in faith, I'm just going to enjoy you and enjoy the good, enjoy the untarnished world that you want me to live in, just for a day. I'll be honest with you, like I, as a, even as a pastor, I'm not immune to temptation. It's not that I, I never sin. And so, so there's got to be this moment where on this day of rest, we say, God, I'm intentionally going to walk away from evil and let my heart be best seasoned to accept rest that you have for me. And just like a, a cast iron pan will never accept seasoning if it's cold, my heart will never really accept rest if it's rebellious. And so God, like a loving father, is saying, I want you to have your fear be not, not what might happen to you, but the greater fear that you will go through life and never experience rest, a special rest that I've designed you for. When you rest that way, when you set, when you set aside, when you distance yourself from evil, what you'll find is that rest becomes this sort of precursor anticipating a life and existence where there is no evil, 
There are no fathers who angrily hit their kids. There are no people who judge you. There are no people that, that are frustrating and, and hard for you to love and hurt you. There are, there's none of that. And so we anticipate a rest that's beyond that. John Newton says it this way in, in, in a hymn that he wrote a long time ago. He says, Safely through another week, God has brought us on our way. Let us now a blessing seek, waiting in his courts today. Day of all the week the best, emblem of eternal rest. It's the emblem. It's the representative of rest. It's a representative of what waits for us. And there's another emblem that's near and dear to us, and, and that's communion. So you got your little cups there and do your best to just kind of open up the top half without spilling the bottom half. But this, this is an emblem of why it is we're even able to rest. As we're reminded and we reflect on the fact that God has finished something on the cross. His body that was broken is just sort of this, this forever action. His blood that was poured out, this forever action. That those who are in faith are made right through his sacrifice. And so we rest from our, our evil because ultimately we rest in the fact that Jesus Christ shed his blood to forgive us of our evil. The night the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and broke and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and he said, this is, this is my blood which is poured out for you. emblematic as it represents the work of Jesus on the cross for us so the rest is even a possibility and my wife and I we, we started watching this show called Alone I, I like it it's a fun show the premise of the show is they take 10 people and they put them out in 10 different spots in the wilderness you get 10 items to take along with you whoever survives the longest gets $500,000 so they have all this stuff that they can take with them, but really they're just they're working their tail off to stay alive and to last and to not go crazy. But they have no idea when somebody else leaves. So it'll be like day 50, and they're like, there could be eight other people left, or there could be nine other, there could be nobody left, I don't know. They only find out because when they're the last one, what happens is, and they do routine medical checks where they come and make sure they're not you know, wasting away, they're not doing damage to themselves. The way they find out they won, they won is, is they'll do a medical check and they'll act like it's just a routine medical check. And, and then afterwards, a family member will come around the corner and they'll see him for the first time in 80, 90 days. And, and this is a beautiful moment where they find, they find out, they, they're reunited and the family member says, you won. You're the last one. You made it. You won. It's so incredibly powerful. There's that moment from when the, the second to last person has, has gone home and it's just them in the woods where they have no idea that they've won. 
And they're just living in this reality, not knowing the money's already theirs. And they see they've won, and then there's that moment where they realize it. That's what God wants rest to be for you. For you to stop and say, I've won. And I don't need this old life anymore. I've won. I get to enjoy the day where one day my eyes will close for the last time and they'll open and standing there will be Jesus. You won because I won. Let's pray. My God and Father, as you are our Father, I understand how deeply you want incredible rest for us how passionately you want one of the most special privileges you have for us. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people that pursue you and find out what that special rest is. In Jesus' name, amen.